Glad you could join us for this installment of Clone Wars, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And tonight we're here to talk about Season 2, Episode 4 of BBC America's Orphan Black that aired on May 10th, 2014. The episode is titled Governed, as it were, by chance. And remember, you can access this show and all our Orphan Black shows through both the Lost Girl podcast, Fadeless, and Liberate, a continuum podcast. So as long as you subscribe to either podcast, you'll automatically receive our Orphan Black discussions in your feed. Or if you prefer, you can go directly to www.continuumpodcast.com or fatalists.podbean.com to listen. Or you can subscribe through Stitcher if you don't like those pesky M4A files. Yeah, I'm becoming more and more of a fan of Stitcher, but uh, and we really appreciate we've been getting feedback from listeners of the other podcasts about the Orphan Black podcast. So we appreciate the fact that you're listening and letting us know. Yeah, and as our listenership in- increases, unfortunately, <laughs> Orphan Black viewership declines, huh? Yeah, 37% decline from episode two to three, and and I'm really not sure what to make of that. Uh, you know, it, BBC America numbers are always a bit dicey anyway, but so I don't know. I'm not worried. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I'm worried either. So we got a lot to talk about tonight, and there are a lot of uh, WTF moments. There are a lot of answers given to us, but for every answer, two questions are raised. And you, you consider this to be the best of the season so far, you think? Ah, uh, maybe. Uh, you know, although it might just simply be because I got some answers. That's right. <laughs> That's always a good criteria to use. Yeah. Right. All right. So we've, we've really got five different stories tonight. So why don't we start with Mrs. S, who's becoming perhaps the most pivotal character in the entire episode. Well, from the standpoint of she seems to know the most. Yes. And, <laughs> and she is continually surprising us. Uh, you know, when we first meet her, she's just simply a a nice uh, foster mom who raised two children who loved each other. And, you know, now we're finding out that she's a cold-blooded murderer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But we were happy to see one of our familiar faces from Continuum. And I guess I got a little bit of a heads up, but it was still quite a shocker to see Roger Cross sporting an Irish accent uh, as an old friend of Mrs. S's from London, Carlton. Yeah, and no, I had no idea he was going to be in this, so that was... I, I, I think I'm over saying <laughs> it was a shock to see Roger Cross in a genre show filmed in Canada, <laughs> but I was still surprised. That's right. But Carlton was an interesting character because it's mentioned when Mrs. S meets up with Benjamin, who was the one who brought Sarah uh, originally to the Bird Watchers. So uh, Benjamin says, no need to make a trip to London. He's actually here in the city. And what a reunion they have, Dave. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, sex in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> clearly, they had some sort of relationship. But I think the, the key point is, who sent him to North America and why? Yeah, why is he there? Is it part of his business that we find out has something to do with being a conduit, almost an underground railroad of sorts? Uh, not in a illegal trading kind of way, is it? It's more of a rescue situation almost. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, but he doesn't seem to know anywhere near what Mrs. S knows. No. And 
And of course, at that point, you know, we're, we're mentioning who sent him and why is he here. But by the same token, why does she want to go to London? I mean, what does she think? Ben, uh, what does she think Carlton can do for her? Right, and we don't get a mention of anybody other than some mysterious man named Kassoff, who was the ferryman, according to Carlton. Not sure what that means, but it seems like even after Mrs. S talks to Carlton, she feels like she knows more than he does. All we know is that he claims to not know anything more than just the surface information, and she knows more than him. And then as she tells him, the whole world of shit's going to unravel if Sarah keeps digging. So. Right, and all his main connection was that he brought Sarah to her 20 years ago. Right, right. Didn't so, ask any questions and hasn't since, apparently. <laughs> no, no. Now, we see Hel- uh, Helena a little bit at the Prolethean Ranch, and again, we don't see a whole lot of her, but what we do see is pretty important, certainly, yeah. as far as Sarah's concerned. Uh, and, you know, we, you and I, were, again, we're talking about this earlier in the day, and, and I'm still trying to get a handle on why Gracie is so opposed to helena calling her it yeah it's it's got to stem from some kind of religious devotion that goes deeper than the break off from the prolethians that henrik has seemed to have fostered so maybe she is kind of more devoted to the old ways similar to to Tomas. and maybe there's others that feel that way too but henrik has such a powerful charisma that he's obviously pulled his tribe or his family away from that sort of thinking and bringing science into it while still holding on to a lot of the weird, creepy uh, binding traditions and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, usually we see it's the parents that are, uh, you know, so steeped in the religious fanaticism, and the children are the ones that want to break away. And, and we assume that Henrik is her natural father. Yeah, I would assume that. Okay. So, you know, does she feel threatened? Or like you said, is it is it purely from a religious philosophical standpoint? Uh, Henrik tells Helena in this, you know, we're not like Tomas. We love you for who you are. Helena is uncomfortable with Henrik's touch, and she's looking at her ring as though she's wondering how the heck it got there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, off in the uh, distance, we've got Art still taking pictures. And, you know, this this week we uh, see the acknowledgement that Henrik knows that they're out there, but doesn't seem concerned. He says, what can they see? There's really nothing to see. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that, but I guess he's right. Not much more that Art can do besides take pictures. <laughs> yeah, now Bonnie says that another location would have been safer for Helene. I'm not sure what that means, what the other locations are. So are, are there other ranches like this? Yeah, that was one thing I thought. And also it made uh, it more noticeable what the dynamic is between them, because Henrik kind of gave her a look like, don't question me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, I- I'm sure you weren't surprised. I wasn't surprised. I <laughs> doubt there were very many regular viewers that were surprised that when Gracie tries to smother Helena with a pillow, it's not going to work. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, go back to hell where you belong. And, uh, you know, clearly we know what's going to happen. You know, we're waiting for oh, the, o- the only thing we didn't get was uh, Gracie backing away, thinking she'd done the deed. And all of a sudden, Helena's eyes opening. Right. We didn't, we didn't get that. <laughs> but close enough. <laughs> close enough. Um, and then she puts the sleeper hold on her and, in fact, tells her, you go to sleep now. Which is good. I mean, Gracie should feel uh, happy that she got away with her life, to be yes, honest. Absolutely. Uh, but when she gets to that room, uh, you know, some sort of clearly medical procedure room, she starts having flashbacks to procedures that were done to her and, and what we finally figure out that that she was somehow 
I guess, artificially inseminated, although, and then her eggs, I guess the fertilized eggs extracted. Yeah, which kind of is surprising from the standpoint of I didn't realize she was there long enough to do that, because uh, it seems like that would take a long time. But yeah, clearly several nights of being sedated. And this is where, when she grabs a weapon, just from the memories of it all, and is really pissed, boy, it's a good thing Gracie didn't get in her way at that point, because I don't think she would have been quite as as merciful. But it, it is surprising that she runs right by Art, though, without doing anything to him. Yeah. Um, and, and as I mentioned before to you earlier, uh, you, hopefully you paid attention more and maybe the uh, listeners paid more attention in science class than I did. But, but again, what we see through the microscope, I assume, is a fertilized egg. Right. And then split. We were wondering if it might also have something to do with a cloned cell. But I'm more firmly in the camp of this is a fertilized egg that has been extracted from Helena. Yeah. Now, were you surprised that Art didn't grab her or anything like that? Or at least try to say something to her. Yeah. Yeah. Although it did. I mean, clearly he protected her. Right. And in fact, when he mentions to Mark and his cronies that they can't go onto public land with their guns, it's kind of interesting to see Mark and them back down. Because when Mark was around in the restaurant, the diner with the other fellow that that got shot, he didn't seem like someone who was going to back down to just statements of law. (laughs) It's like, we're just going to do what we want. But sure enough, that's that was enough. Art was able to um, get make some headway there. You know, pretty much all we see of Helena until later in the episode when she reunites with Sarah. And we'll get to that when we're talking about uh, Sarah's story. Now, uh, maybe one of the funniest, and uh, you know, I even say that, and it's As really usual. not, uh, not, not, but but not funny in, in the in the certainly in the traditional sense. But Allison wakes up; she's got a broken arm in a sling, strange room. And to me, she looks a lot like Sarah. I mean, the makeup was much more similar to Sarah. Her hair was was down more than it usually is. Uh, the running mascara. She thinks she's at the Dyad Institute, and we find out that she's, in fact, in rehab. Right. And that's kind of surprising from the standpoint of, as they mention, Felix mentions it and Donnie mentions it, that you have to consent to be in rehab. They can't commit you to rehab. So somewhere along the line, she agreed to it in her stupor, I guess. Right. Now, she has not let Donnie know that she knows he's her monitor, right? Not outright, although she certainly suggested it in strong terms. But yeah, he's his threats seem to me more from the standpoint of husband who is also manipulating the situation as monitor, but not in an overt way. You know, the, the interesting dilemma, though, is that these are children that he raised. You know, we assume from babies. Yeah. We don't know that for sure, but... This is a big threat on his part. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he's got the lawyers involved. Now, Felix comes to see her. And and the other interesting thing that that comes out of this episode, we've seen this developing relationship between Felix and Allison as Sarah. You know, I don't want to say she is pulling away from Felix. I mean, she is, you know, because of circumstances, and Cal. <laughs> and Cal, but but she is pulling away from Felix. Felix has already said he feels like he has no place, and he's drawn closer and closer to Allison. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes, because how can he not help but feel like she's the sister that he didn't know he had? Right, and she needs him more. She's 
going th through some problems with having to regain her dignity, which Felix actually alludes to. This will help Allison regain her dignity, but clearly she's doing some very undignified urine tests, among other things. And it'll be interesting to see if this will change her at all, whether it have a transformative result or whether or not this will just be a bump in the road of her continuing with whatever it is she's continuing with. I mean, what other difficulties she, does she have if, if she's signed the agreement with Rachel? Right. And in fact, that's how the episode was cut, or I'm sorry, that's how the scene was cut, where uh, he's talking about regaining her dignity, and then it immediately cuts to her <laughs> giving the urine sample with the uh, uh, the fairly funny nurse in rehab. Yeah, she's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, uh, we see Delphine and Cosima, and I'll tell well, you- every Just Cosima this time, but yeah. Well, right. She's watching videos of Jennifer again. Uh, Sarah Skypes in mm -hmm. and shows her the Project Lita photo and mentions the whole myth of Zeus and Lita. Yeah, that's an interesting tie-in that she brings in because, and I was familiar with, with the myth and had thought of it, but I guess I didn't know how it related. But the way she put it was good because their kids, Zeus and Lita's kids in the myth, were half God and half human. And it sort of speaks to maybe how Dyad, anyway feels, or maybe Project Lita, the people who ran that, feel about these creations of theirs, Sarah and her sisters. Yeah, and you wonder how the Prolethians feel. Yeah. You know, half human, half devil, perhaps. That's right. But she does notice one detail that many of us have wondered about, and that's the military guy in the background in that photo. Right, and, and she says, look, this has military written all over it. Right, so where's that going to go? Because obviously Project Lita is not directly tied to the Diet Institute. And so it's got to have its own story behind it. The military relationship is only one of the pieces of the puzzle. Right. And then while Cosima continues to cough, at least this time she wasn't coughing up any blood, at least that we saw. But it still was kind of alarming. You wonder what the, uh, what the Diet Institute's been able to do, if anything, you know, in, in terms of making progress with that. Yeah, it seems like they're kind of at a dead end, but I'm hoping that either Cosima or or Delphine or both together will come up with something, kind of have an epiphany, a eureka moment. Okay. All right. Well, look, the major part of the story obviously was Sarah, who's on the run with Cal. And, and last time I mentioned Daniel being very Terminator-esque. <laughs> WTF? How can he still be alive? Seriously. Okay. And he even comes out of that truck or... The car that uh, Sarah was in. And by the way, that was the big thing at the end of the last episode. Who was that in the car? Was it something where Sarah did it on purpose? Nope. It was Cal. But yeah, he was out for a long time. But then when he emerged, he was kind of bloodied, but none the worse for wear. I mean, he just kind of walks without a limp. Yeah. Well, you know, I start thinking, okay, is he one of the clones with <laughs> these right. regenerative powers? Because, well, he was a Cylon after all. So that's know. right. <laughs> uh, so there is that. Uh, but, but the vehicle, again, the vehicle that Cal hit him with was a big vehicle. Plus he had the, I don't even know what you call it. One of these uh, big, you know, gate looking thing on the, on the front. front. Yeah. Because his vehicle didn't look that worse for wear. So. No, it was unscratched. <laughs> yeah, but uh, regardless, uh, he makes it out alive. Uh, Sarah certainly thinks Daniel's dead, grabs his gun, and the, you know, Cal says, we got to call the police. And of course, she doesn't want to. And, and at that moment, the police car comes down and Cal, you know, it's almost like everything is just happening in slow motion for him. And he realizes that she's prepared to shoot the police if they stop. 
and she's holding the murder weapon of Daniel that shot the cop friend of his up at the ranch. So right. Cal has the presence of mind to, you know, keep cooler heads and try to talk reason to her. But I tell you, if that cop had stopped, I think uh, Sarah might not have been having cooler minds prevail, unfortunately. Right. So, and, and God bless him. I mean, he's trying to find out what this is all about. Yeah, you know, he's he's a patient man. <laughs> yes, I mean he is having his eyes open in, in every turn. He mentions he's not good. He's never been a father, but he boy, I'll tell you, he he's like a duck to water with with Kira. I that's know. for sure. He's doing a great job. And, and now, was she left alone at that place? Yeah, he was like hide so that no one can find you, almost like hide and seek. But it, it had to have been at least an hour. <laughs> I would I would think. Now again, what we've seen of Kira, she certainly for her age. Uh, able to adapt well to just about any situation, but he doesn't necessarily know that. But then again, I think he realizes he didn't have much of a choice, and I guess he felt it was safe enough. Yeah, he's happy it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's got a camper hidden, and you know they're going to go on the run in the camper. And I like the one the, the one scene when they talk about a bolo, and she explains what a bolo is. It's like I know what a bolo is. <laughs> well, that's a good question, though. I mean, it's funny, but at the same time, I think. Cal has some experience with something insidious because he knows what a bolo is. Perhaps he's had something like uh, a crime in his past. And the fact that he's getting this camper, which is not in his name and is, has quick access to it. You know, she won't answer questions and he is not going to answer her questions about this stuff either. Right. And I think the fact that he lives out in the middle of nowhere by himself, you know, it tells us that again, that there's more to Cal than we're, Yes. Uh, we've been introduced to at this point. Yes, and, and Cal's going to continue to surprise us, I think, but I think the big thing that comes out of his probably very offhanded uh, thought was when he made the origami butterfly for Kira, and she dubs it an angel. And we've seen angel imagery throughout this series, uh, specifically with Helena's angel wings that are scarred on her back, and of course the religious imagery in general. But I get the feeling that Kira really does see it as an angel when she gives it to her mother as a guardian angel to keep her safe. And who knows what Kira's talisman of sorts can actually do, because Kira, you know, we're not sure what, what she can and can't do, and she seems awfully confident. Right, and we all know that Sarah, uh, again, I mean, to say that she goes into things without a plan is only partially true, but she certainly puts herself in situations where she doesn't always have an out. And again, it's like you said, it's, it's almost as if Kira has the prescience to, to know that and in her own way, do something that she thinks will protect her mother. And you know, who's to say it didn't this time? Well, that's right. Cause I was a little worried when Daniel crumpled up at the angel, <laughs> but uh, you know, the end result of course worked out in Sarah's favor. So sort of, <laughs> well, because the real angel came in. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, the, the other you know thing that we haven't talked about yet is that Sarah has Daniel's phone. Again, she had the presence of mind to take that. She also had the presence of mind to note what his passcode was so she could access his phone so that she's now pretending she's Daniel when Rachel calls. Yeah, that's brilliant. It keeps keeps things at bay, at least until the T-3000 emerges. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And uh, uh, first thing Sarah wants to do is return to Mrs. S's, and I, I guess just to see what she can find. I mean, when, when Mrs. S left, it was as if the house had been ransacked, but of course we've subsequently learned that she did that herself for appearances. Uh, but Felix is there, tells her she's a shite burglar. <laughs> 
Why is he sitting there in the dark? <laughs> that's a good uh, that's a good question. But we do get to see her license, Siobhan Sadler. Time uh, traveler? <laughs> the Sadler family. Yes. yes. Mrs. S. So it's not just her first name that they were talking about there. but Yeah. But, I mean, were you a little surprised that she had these scrapbooks sitting around so easily available with all of these articles? And some pretty key, crucial information that would have blown the lid off of it if it had come out in season one. So yeah, very surprising that they're able to get so much good uh, information from this scrapbook. Right. I mean, uh, Sarah remembers Carlton uh, mm-hmm. as the man who brought her to Mrs. S, uh, which kind of implies that she was certainly old enough to remember that she wasn't brought to Mrs. S as a baby. Uh, you know, we find out about the uh, lab fire that killed six workers during Project Lita. And we find out that Dr. Susan and Ethan Duncan as in Rachel Duncan, we assume, mm-hmm. were the spearheads of this project. And more importantly, Mrs. S. knew about it the whole time. Yeah, if, it, if they're in the scrapbook, then Mrs. S. knew a whole lot. And we've been mentioning that when we first brought her up, but now Sarah knows it too. Mrs. S. is probably the most knowledgeable character in the Clone Club's investigations. Yeah, you know, on the one hand, I almost think that she left it there deliberately for Sarah to find. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but everything else she's doing doesn't seem to coincide with that kind of thinking. So, and so it makes it seem kind of careless on Mrs. S.'s part. Yeah, and everything she's done would lead you to believe that there's nothing careless about her. So, it, it, it again, it's really uh, perplexing at this point. Now, Sarah gets a text from Rachel uh, about the flight's going to come in at 8 a.m., and Sarah tells Felix, what's the first rule of war? Know your enemy. Yep. So then she decides to go to Rachel's apartment, which is where we get the climax of the of the episode, really. Yeah. But um, who's that person in the closet that comes out right as they leave Mrs. Yeah, Mrs. good question. I guess we don't have an answer to that quite yet, but let's keep an eye on that. <laughs> she gets inside the apartment and is talking. Now, who's she talking to? Uh, is this when she calls Cosima? Um. Sarah's inside Rachel's apartment, and she's talking to the hotel guy, the, the concierge maybe, or like <laughs> the bellhop of the apartment building. I, I, what would you call that? I guess the, the doorman maybe. Right. To, to warm up her apartment. to a, uh, 68 degrees exactly. Yes. And don't linger. I'll know if you do. <laughs> That's right. Right. But then she gets on, because the, you know the, the best line of the episode... Well, my favorite, yeah. Right, because and she's talking to Kasima at that point, right? Felix. Felix wants to know, what's, oh, right, right, right. what's Rachel's apartment look like? Well, it's straight out of Cold Bitch Digest. <laughs> right. All right, so uh, she gets Kasima, and, and she wants her to research these, the Duncan doctors, and finds out they were British geneticists working on recombinant DNA as early as 1971. And then, and then Rachel makes, uh, I'm sorry, and then Kasima makes a series of assumptions about Rachel, Uh, and the first being that she was raised to be self-aware that she was a clone. And I don't know that there's any evidence that would support that. No, and in fact, because so many other facts play out incorrectly in Cosima's view, it sort of makes you question a lot of what Cosima's conclusion, because Cosima does give us a lot of conclusions. She was the one that really came up with the first ideas about the monitor as well. Right, right. So, yeah, the fact that Rachel was not a 
did not have withdrawn parents who didn't give her any affection, as evidenced by the 1991 VHS tape that that, uh, Sarah is playing while Kasima is drawing these conclusions over the phone, we clearly see that Rachel's upbringing was quite uh, pleasant and pointing out, of course, that she took the place of what Helena and Sarah were supposed to be uh, raised. So, and again, I don't know if the evidence is totally there for that either, but that is something that, well, first of all, begs the question, why is this tape sitting in the VHS player? And who has a VHS player anyway? Well, but she's, <laughs> you know, but again, I think the key thing is we see in the drawer that there's a... More of them, yeah. All right, and, and one says Rachel's graduation, one says Rachel's Halloween, so that, you know, clearly you said, why is uh, this tape in the machine? Be- and I think because she watches it to relive the happy childhood that she had or that she thought she had, but... My question is, we know her parents were alive as, as late as 1991, mm-hmm. right? which would put her at around age seven because the clones were all born in 1984. I'm wondering whether she is the one that was responsible for the lab fire. Yeah, and what would have motivated her to do that? But yeah, Rachel could have had something in her past that caused her to do that and caused her parents' death. Or is this all in remorse that she's watching all these tapes? So. Yeah, either one of those possibilities is is definitely in play. Yeah, well, we uh, got our scene straight out of one of the Saw movies when uh, <laughs> Bloody Daniel surprises Sarah, and uh, you know he's talking to Leaky on the phone before he surprises her, and says something that leads Sarah to believe that he's not going to physically hurt her. Well, especially since Rachel can't find out, so Daniel's going to Leaky behind Rachel's back here. Right, right. But yeah, so she feels like she's safe, but. Sort of. It doesn't mean he can't torture her. No. Now, is he going to cut her ear off? Yeah. What was he doing? I mean, it literally looked like he was going to cut it off. And you start thinking, again, one of these proof of life things, but... Or is he just trying to get the answer to what else she knows about the Project Lita photo? And we don't see Sarah, you know, in this kind of an emotional state, maybe ever. Yeah. She's terrified. She doesn't have her normal, cool, calm, collected... uh, demeanor even in the face of uh, um, immense crisis (laughs) right now she tries you know that whole you know don't i look like her yeah because i assume she assumes that daniel's the boy toy exactly when when she sees the clothes in the closet and and he may or may not be but she tries that approach and when she quickly realizes that's not going to work and that he means business and then fortunately what is it some something goes off in the other room you know, like yeah. some, some sort of a... Some noise makes Daniel say, well, hang on a minute. And right. he leaves the room. Right. Uh, and, and he leaves the room. And, and obviously, remember, he's got he's got Sarah tied in the mm-hmm. bathroom, you know, hands above her head. Uh, and she's, you know, really helpless. And then, you know, you hear a commotion in there. And the next thing we see is Helena. And again, just so much blood all over her. And she's still wearing the... I guess, wedding gown, if you will, <laughs> yeah. from the ranch. And of course, Sarah, on the one hand, can't believe that she's alive because she thought she shot her to death. Yeah. And she's just, the, the reaction has even gotten higher, more elevated now. And understandably, because she just killed Daniel, she's coming in blood everywhere, wielding a knife. And did you notice that, that she's holding the knife and the blood's dripping off the knife? Yeah. Daniel's jugular has definitely been severed. I think he's, 
He's truly dead, not just mostly dead. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you were dead. I shot you. And you got to believe that Sarah's thinking she's going to kill me now. Right. And, you know, Hel Helena starts talking about it being a miracle. And please, Sistra, I need your help. <laughs> but Don't uh, send me back. And, and, you know, I think at that moment... And then, oh, and then the scene, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. And then she goes in and, and just that, that hugging her where, you know, her head is on Sarah's chest and yeah. she's still holding the knife. And it's just Sarah just sobbing. And Helena says, he took something from inside me, which is where we draw our conclusions about it being a fertilized egg from her womb. And is Sarah sobbing in just disbelief that this is even happening that she's got physical contact with helena or is she making some sort of realization that i'm not gonna die here well right and and i think it's probably a little of all of that but i think at this point how can sarah not understand that for all that she's done in the past helena's just like her she's just like Cosima. she's just like allison they had this done to them yep they need to bring her into the fold and just keep a close eye on her yeah, so that's what uh, I think. But yeah. boy, what a great ending! Wow, I'm not kidding. Uh, Daniel better be dead. <laughs> so who's left to protect Rachel now? Yeah, I don't know. Somebody will step up, I think. Yeah, but, but you know, she can get another henchman. She Maybe can. not quite as skilled or or hard to kill, but still. All right. Well, listen. Thanks for joining us. Mike and I will be back next week to discuss episode five, titled "Ipsa Scientia Potestas." Est. And if you'd like to send us feedback, you can use SpeakPipe on either the Fatalists or the Liberate websites. It's there on the right-hand side of the webpage. Or you can send an email to feedback at continuumpodcast.com or fatalistspodcast at gmail.com. Or feel free to leave a voicemail at 773-LIBERATE-8. And we'll see you next week. I'm free to decide I'm free